The following episode of this show is ad-free and uninterrupted. This is episode 434 with Dr. John Demartini, and we chat about how to find the magic in what's happening in the world right now. Welcome to the Melissa Ambrosini Show. I'm your host, Melissa, best-selling author of Mastering Your Mean Girl, Open Wide, and Comparisonitis. And I'm here to remind you that love is sexy, healthy is liberating, and wealthy isn't a dirty word. Each week, I'll be getting up close and personal with thought leaders from around the globe, as well as your weekly dose of motivation so that you can create epic change in your own life and become the best version of yourself possible. Are you ready, beautiful? We live in troubled times. We're more divided than ever. There's only one right answer. We've all heard these things said over the past two years. Maybe you've even said them yourself, but are they actually true? What lies beneath the surface of these blank statements? And what divine opportunities are we missing when we opt for certainty and tribalism over nuance and polarity. To help answer these questions, the amazing Dr. John Demartini is back on the show, and he was supposed to be interviewed by none other than Melissa Ambrosini, the host of this show. However, our beautiful little daughter decided that this morning's nap was just not going to happen, and she wanted mama. So luckily, I was a part of the brainstorming and putting the questions together for this episode, so I was fully up to date, fully briefed, and ready to go to jump in the hot seat. Now, John is here to share his thoughts on what the current state of the world is doing to our collective consciousness, how we can find the hidden gifts and opportunities amid the turbulence, and why embracing polarity might just be the most important soul work we can do right now. This really is an episode like no other. It's a culture-defining conversation that cuts through the noise, confusion, the conflict, and it puts into words the swirling thoughts and feelings that so many of us have been grappling with now for almost two years. Dr. John Demartini is a polymath, a world-renowned human behavior expert with a doctorate of chiropractic. He's got over four decades of research across multiple disciplines. And Dr. Demartini's mission and vision is to share knowledge and wisdom that empowers you to become a master of your own life and destiny. He's an internationally published author, a global educator, and the founder of the Demartini Method. Now, we could go on and on about John. He's done so much. He's been on Larry King, CNN, CNBC, and he's changed countless lives around the world, including ours especially Melissa's. She was fortunate to go to John's breakthrough experience, which was really life-changing for her. And, you know, we really are grateful to have John as a regular guest on this show. And you can check out his first episode, which was hugely popular, and we'll link to that in today's show notes. So if you want a really different take on the hidden gifts of the global pandemic, if you want a reliable method for becoming truly informed, if you want to know the highest priority actions you can focus on to build your resilience and adaptability. And if you want to understand the crucial importance of divine polarity in these pretty strange times, then turn up the volume, keep those earbuds in, and let's dive in with Dr. John Demartini. John Demartini, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's such a joy that I get to interview today because Melissa was scheduled to interview you. However, we have a teething little baby who needs her mum right now. And we decided to go ahead anyway and do this interview because secretly, I'm extremely happy to have this honor because I love 
everything that you teach. And we often say that one of the most influential people in our lives is you. I must say that the understanding that you've given us on polarity, divine order, opposites, has been life-changing. So I'm excited. But before we jump into the episode, I have a very important question for you. And that is, what did you have for breakfast this morning? I had some lovely oatmeal, water-based cooked, a bit of bran on it, some fresh mango, really fresh mango, and some beautiful plain Greek yogurt. That was my breakfast this morning. You know, other than the yogurt, we had pretty much the identical breakfast. I'm looking at your backdrop and because we've met before and I know a bit about your life, I know where you're sitting right now. I know you're sitting on a very big boat called The World. Tell us about The World and your life. You mentioned to me before this interview, I think in the last five months, you've been to 50 different ports. Where are you now? And tell us a bit about living on this boat for people who don't know what it is. I'm in Zenuhuacu, or whatever it is, in Mexico. Off the, It's a beautiful paradise, tropical port off the Pacific in Mexico. I've been here since yesterday, and we'll be leaving out late tonight. I've been living on the world for over 20 years now, and it's the best address I've been able to find on the planet. It has the blessings of going wherever we want to take it. We vote, we go where we want to go around the world. There's a group of us, there's about a hundred of us that own the ship. I think it's about a $2 billion ship divided by a hundred people. And it's fantastic. We've got fantastic restaurants, fantastic entertainment, fantastic education. We have uh, Nobel Prize winners coming on and speaking and educating us. We have everything you could imagine you'd need to, to have a functional life here. And we go to different ports and uh, all the passport and COVID and all that stuff is really simply taken care of. So we just go off and on and yeah, I can't complain. I've met amazing people, gone to amazing places, and had a great experience as I go around the world. And we go to wherever it keeps warm, so we keep a good environment. We're headed from here to Puerto Vallarta, Mazalan, Cabo San Lucas, San Diego, then off into the Hawaiian Islands, and then out into the French Polynesian Islands, Easter Island, and then back over to South America, and then back over into the Panama Canal, and up into the Gulf and into the Caribbean and then back over and through the Atlantic, back over to the Mediterranean. So we, we just move around and there's some amazing people on here and many of them from Australia. There's some from Australia, quite a few. What a fascinating life. You must have had some very interesting experiences in 20 years and we've gone to probably, I don't know, thousands of ports, but tell us what's one of the most crazy things you've witnessed or experienced on the world or at a port? Well, I think that the things, I mean, sometimes we go to little bitty places like there's not even an island there. There's nothing there. It's, it's just ocean. But at a certain tide, a certain day of the year, an island appears. And so what we'll do is we'll catch that window, get on rubber rafts, and go over to a beach that does not exist but for four hours, set up some uh, umbrellas and some bring some food and have a picnic over there and then be off there in four hours as it disappears as we sail off. So that's pretty crazy kind of thing that could happen. Or we might have uh, pull into a magnificent port like Sydney or New York or Shanghai or someplace that's just majestic port sailing in. You know, sailing into Sydney is lovely. We were in Jamaica the other day. We had a private little tiny port place with a private beach area where there was just fantastic 
tropical paradise. And um, surf was off to the side, so you could go surfing if you wanted to go just paddle over there and surf. Or you could just hang out at the beach. Or you could go and take cars to go right where we were rafting or go play with the monkeys or something, you know, whatever you wanted to do. So there's lots of private things to do that you can coordinate. There's a concierge here that can organize just about anything you want to do. So there's lots of adventure. So speaking of surfing and speaking of Mexico, we were chatting before this interview about an interesting, I think the first time you ever went to Mexico. Can you tell that story? Because that was pretty, pretty wild, actually. Well, I was 14 years old and I hitchhiked from Houston, Texas to LA and down to Huntington Beach, California in pursuit of surf. Texas was not the surf capital. You had to have a hurricane to get a good surf there. But I started surfing when I was nine. So at 14, I hitchhiked out to California. Amazing adventure just getting there. And then I decided at the towards part of the way through the summer, I decided I'm going to head down to Mexico. I went to Tijuana out of San Diego and they wouldn't let me get across. And it would have taken me to Baja and it wouldn't have taken me where I was because of my geography wasn't so great. I was a high school dropout at the time, as you probably remember. So the guy said, if you want to get across into Mexico, you're going to have to go to Tecate, which is just inland, you know, so many miles. So I hitchhiked over to Tecate and I tippy-toed across the railroad track and checkpoint where a guy was having a siesta and leaning back on a chair with a gun on his belly. And that was the checkpoint. And I snuck across there without having the paperwork or anything like that. They didn't have a lot of paperwork in those days anyway. But And I snuck across there with my board and stuff like that and got in there. And then from Tecate, I hitchhiked to Mexicali and then to Sonuita, and then Hermosillo and then Guaymas and then down to Mazalan and then Puerto Viarte and well, San Blas and Puerto Viarte and Acapulco, Escondido. And I was a surf uh, rat, as they say. And then came back all the way up to go back to Laredo to go to a contest that was going to be in Porta uh, Isabel, Texas. And I had to figure out how to get out of the country because I didn't have the paperwork going in. So there's a bunch of lines and cars going across the border. And I went car to car to car until I found an old couple that I told them my situation. And they said I could be their grandkid and be in the back seat with my surfboard and tell them that they took their grandkid down to Mexico to surfing. And the police, the customs people bought it. You didn't have to have a passport or anything like that for the kid, just need it for the adult. So I got out of the country as I got in, safe and sound without having to, there was no Trump wall at the time. Let's put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> so you've basically gone from street kid, high school dropout to living on the world. I mean, that's, that's a pretty unique turnaround, wouldn't you say? Well, yeah, I was a street kid till I was 18 and illiterate till I was 18. I mean, I was literate enough to be able to read Surf Magazine and other Gorilla Magazines. But I uh, I almost died when I was 17, almost 18. And I ended up going to a particular class where a gentleman named Paul C. Bragg was speaking at a run- Sunset Recreation Hall in the North Shore of Oahu, where I was living. When I first moved to Hawaii, I lived under a bridge at Kamehameha Highway. Then I moved into a park bench, under a park bench, and then a bathroom, then a abandoned car, and then finally a tent. So I kept social climbing until I had been in the tent, but then I almost died. And this led me to a health food store, which led me to a yoga class, which led me to a talk by this man. And in one hour, this man just absolutely awakened inside of me a thought that maybe I could overcome my learning problems because I had learning difficulties. 
and speaking problems. And maybe I could someday become intelligent. And that was the night that I saw a dream and a vision of me traveling the world, teaching and being intelligent someday. And so that was 49 years and a month ago, tomorrow actually. And I went on a pursuit to overcome my learning problems. And I had to take a GED, a high school equivalency test. And I tried to go back to school and I failed. And then I almost gave up. And one day my mom saw me crying on the floor because I couldn't read. And she said, what happened? And I said, I blew the test. I don't know how to study. I don't know how to do this. And uh, she said, whether you become a great teacher and travel the world, whether you go back to ride big waves in Hawaii, or whether you become a street kid on the, you know, bombing the streets, I just want to let you know your father and I are going to love you no matter what. And when she said that, my hand went into a fist and I got this determination thing feeling. And I said, I'm going to master this thing called reading and studying. I'm going to master this thing called teaching and philosophy. And I'm going to do whatever it takes, travel whatever distance, pay whatever price to give my service of love across this planet. And I was absolutely determined. There was absolutely no turning back. I'm, I said to myself, I'm not going to let anybody on the face of the earth stop me, not even myself. I hugged my mom. I went in my room and I started, I got a dictionary out and I started memorizing 30 words a day. And I memorized 30 new words a day, every day. And then within a year, I had 10,000 new words. And I did that. I just kept doing that. And I started reading and I started passing and I started excelling. And then I never put books down. I just started reading every single day and devouring whatever I could. I think I read eight complete sets of encyclopedias, dictionaries. I just started reading everything I could get my hands on. And now, 30,600 books later, here I am traveling the world. I think I've spoken in 159 countries and um, never gave up on my dream. That led me to learn how to value myself and learn how to... One of the things I wanted to master is finance too. So I learned how to save my money and I was a very diligent saver. I lived simple and just saved a lot. And eventually that started compounding and I was able to raise my, my lifestyle over time. So now I'm pretty well completely financial independent. I don't have to work. I just do what I love, which is research, write, travel, and teach. I mean, I, we could change the topic of this interview and just focus on your life because it's so fascinating. And, you know, 30,600 books I can honestly say I'm nowhere near that, but um, I do love to read. And I'm curious, your thoughts on fiction? Because there's this, I guess there's this sort of thing in the sort of conscious, awake community that you don't read fiction, you just, you know, you read spiritual texts and self-help books and this sort of stuff. And I've gravitated away from that recently. I am actually writing a fiction novel myself, so that's part of the reason. But I've actually found a lot of joy in the worlds other people create in fiction. What's your take on fiction novels? And have you read much fiction? I can't say that I've read a lot of fiction. There are some fictions that I do read because of the topic. I can't say I've read a lot of novels per se, but I've mainly been reading really for to my objectives. I, When I was 18 and I started to learn how to read, and the teacher Paul Bragg inspired me to want to study the laws of the universe kind of thing, I went to the dictionary and I wanted to know what is a universal law. And that led me to a natural law and it led me to Aristotle. And it led me to the reason of the universe, which was the logos, which then led me to wanting to know all the different ologies and disciplines a human being could study. So I made a list, a very exhaustive list of every discipline and ology a human being could study. And then I realized the average PhD read about 100 books in a field. So I made a commitment to read 100 books in every ology, which is now 300. And I decided to do that just for my own discipline and try to find the most universal principles 
I could get my hands on out of all that? What's the common threads to all those? So I can't say I did a lot of fiction reading. I have come across Isaac Isimov had some writings that were fascinating, kind of science fiction. And I read some of those. And I've read a few, particularly if I knew the individual that wrote it. But I can't say that's been my dominant reading. But I've certainly seen amazing fiction writing that is incredibly done with there's just a vast amount of learning that can come from that. So I, I'm certainly aware of brilliant fiction writings that are probably more adept than some speculations by scientists because they've really done their homework. So I've certainly seen and known of that. And there's been a few of those I've put together. But most of the time I'm reading things that are purposeful towards the objectives that I'm trying to accomplish in most cases. And I have quite a diversity of topics I get to speak on. So that keeps me on my toes reading and studying and learning and trying to keep up to date with things. Yeah, we will link in the show notes to some of your books. Now, the books that have really impacted me. Interesting enough, I actually haven't read The Breakthrough Experience. You know, you're very well known for your Breakthrough Experience and the live event. And my wife, Melissa, has been to The Breakthrough Experience and it was really, really supportive and helpful for her. We had a little mini Breakthrough Experience that you conducted in a small room in Sydney with about 10 of us as we were producing a film many years ago, which was very special. But two of the books which really impacted me was The Heart of Love. And I may get this wrong, but <laughs> How to Make One Hell of a Profit and Still Get Into Heaven. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So for those of you who are listening to this interview and thinking, you know, how did John end up where he is financially? He's written a book on finances and it's really fantastic advice, like really solid. It's one of those books I've got so many notes from. It's ridiculous. Like it's, I've almost sort of copy and pasted the entire book into my Evernote. <laughs> so thank you. I just got off the Zoom earlier today with a gentleman who is an agent that is involved with Think and Grow Rich and other books of that type. And he just, we're just signing a deal this probably next week where it's a 10 book deal, two books a year for five years. And we just outlined the titles and one of them will be on psychology of wealth building that's going to come. That'll be one of them. I've had a dream to help people master their life and to me, a mastered life is one that's involved in mastering, waking up their genius, building their potential global business, helping them have financial independence, helping them have a relationship that's deeply meaningful and fulfilling with communication, assisting them in social leadership mastery, physical fitness and well-being and inspiration. So I'm a firm believer that you can master all those areas and do something extraordinary with all of them. So that I've been Anything to do with mastering of those areas I've been devouring all these years. Because I believe that a person, any area of our life we don't empower, somebody's going to overpower us. So, and nobody's getting up in the morning and dedicating their life to our fulfillment. So if we don't take command of it, then other people kind of override it. You know, it's like if you don't fill your day with high priority actions, it fills up with low priority distractions. And if you don't fill your day with challenges that inspire you, it fills up with challenges that don't. And if you don't invest money in assets, you'll have unexpected bills that will manifest because of entropy taking over anything that's not highly organized. So I'm a firm believer that living by design is wiser than living by duty or default. Interesting what you said about empowerment. I think that's a really nice segue into the topic that Melissa and I wanted to chat to you about today, which was in relation to what's happening in the world now, what has been happening in the last couple of years with COVID-19. And this episode is not by any means meant to be controversial or touch on anything to ruffle feathers. It's really here as a way of supporting people and hopefully lifting them up 
because there is a lot of challenge right now for a lot of people. And it's a particularly poignant time to be speaking to because today in our state of Queensland, we've now gone into really strong measures of segregation. So someone like myself who remains vaccine-free, and I say vaccine-free because I think there's this vaccinated versus unvaccinated conversation I think that really needs to stop. You know, vaccine-free for me is a phrase which allows people to, I guess, say that they have made a choice. They've made a choice to remain free of something. And I respect anyone's decision, vaccinated, not vaccinated. It's not none of my business. But I do believe we have a right to choose what goes in our bodies. And it's made it extremely hard for a lot of people now who are choosing to leave nursing careers, teaching careers, all sorts of careers, because they don't want to be told what goes in their body. And that all comes in to effect today. So this is the perfect day to speak with you. And what we wanted to touch on here was you being the king of polarity. You know, you are the master of divine order, of opposites. You've taught us so much in that respect. It's been life-changing for us. And I said to Melissa the other day, I said, darling, we need to speak to John because there is so much challenge in the world through this. There must be equal opportunity because that is divine order. And as I said, you taught us that. So can you talk to us a bit about what you believe is happening right now in the world and where is the support? Well, I would love to read. I had a gentleman send me a letter that was highly challenged and a bit charged about the mandates. Maybe I could read that if if that would be possible and my response to him. Yeah, please. Because it's sort of a question along that line. I'll probably not show it in the name, but just read what the gentleman sent me first as a letter and then my reply, because I think it will be applied to quite a few people who would listen to this. First of all, this gentleman sent me a letter. It says, Dear Dr. Martini, I'm reasonably aware and empowered in most areas, in part thanks to your work. However, I feel the government is bullying us around at the moment, coercing us to take a vaccine we don't need and do not want to take. I do not think the presence of the government bully, governmental bully, is a response to my level of empowerment. It may, however, be a direct response to how malleable, compliant, or ignorant the herd is. It may also be a direct reflection of the unbridled power that this particular bully has and a reflection of the unmatched influence that money and lobbying has in the media, politics, and policies. I'd be interested to read your thoughts of how we can balance this out. I have no interest in fitting in or complying, and I'm relatively well-read and resourceful in regards to the laws that govern us, but I'm hoping you're not intimidated by governments, John, so you can freely speak about this in this instant. Now, I'd say that that's a reflection of at least a percentage of the population. You probably agree with me, I think. Anyway, this was my response, dear this individual, and I just put it into context. Imagine if you and I were running the local, national, or global government and had the exact same responsibilities of the current leaders concerning millions or billions of lives. How might we restructure the rules concerning the COVID experience? If we trade places with the current decision makers and had to manage all the factors they are facing, how might we handle it? It would not be an easy position to be in. So many opinions, so many expectations, so many demands, so many biases and agendas, so many needs, so many levels of IQ, EQ, and awareness. 
and so many sources of misinformation on both sides of the equation, would we let everyone do whatever they wanted, particularly those that may have the least self-governance? Would we cater to some individual or group? Could we be impartial and fully respectful of every major, minor, and local group and opinion? What would be our highest priorities? What would we allow or not allow? Would we be able to handle the backlash of one side or the other, those that we did not meet the needs of? Would we meet the wisest decisions? Would we have to learn some lessons due to our own biases, our own unconscious motives, or our own blind sides? Will the wisdom of nature still balance out whatever we do with its complementary opposite? Who would we prioritize to help most if everyone had different values and needs, some of which were completely opposite? How would we view ourselves after every decision if we each decision birthed a pair of opposite responses initiate opposite interpretations? I do not know if I have all the information yet to be able to fully give a fully objective view to yet make the wisest action. So I'm being patient and using my own method, the Demartini method, daily on the actions I perceive others that initiate emotional reactions in myself, knowing that they are reflecting a part of me yet to be owned, loved, and appreciated. Thank you for caring enough to explore the many possibilities. Generally, when we are emotionally reactive, we're missing out on some of the available and vital information to make a wise decision. Love and wisdom, John. I thought reading that would be a starting point. It is, and it's had me thinking about a few things, because it's one thing to react, but does that mean there is no place for, I guess, standing up for when you think there's an injustice? No, I think there's a time for standing. The ancients said if you have a just law, standing up against it will make you the villain. If you have an unjust law, standing up against it will make you the hero. If you have an unjust law, abiding by it will make you the herd, and not abiding by it will make you the individual. So there's a place, but I prefer in my reality is to try to first reflect on what it would be like in their position, the people that I'm now perceiving, judging, and try to make sure I go and pluck the moat out of my own eye before I pluck it out of theirs to try to find out where I've done those same things. Because usually we're only reactive to things on the outside that represent parts of us on the inside. We have yet to own, appreciate, and honor. By doing so, that calms down the reaction and leaves us in the executive center, not the amygdala, to be able to make a wiser decision that's more likely to be respectful in communication back. My observation is there's been some people in government that have been autocratic and not really carefully consider objective data for both sides. And as a result of it, they're initiating what they call the law of heuristic escalation. And I hope everybody who hears this might go look up this law. It's a law that was developed on sociology and political sociology from chaos theory. And what they found out is that for every individual or leader that's imposing an ideal in their own value system onto the many, an equal and opposite one or many group, like a union to an autocrat in business, will emerge with a counterbalancing force of equal magnitude in order to humble that which is proud and arrogant. But in the process of doing it, it will create a dialectic, which allows both sides to see and hear the other person's view, hopefully. 
Now, some people are in debate, not in dialectic. They just hold on to their subjective bias. But at the same time, we also have individuals with misinformation on both ends that are emotionally reactive, which is a sign that we have missing information. That's a sign that are equally being autocratic and they're opposing. And so they're starting from an idea, I'm right. And the other person starting from I'm right. And so they get just a butting heads, which only escalates. And that's what the law of heuristic escalation is. It escalates the drama of the amygdala instead of guiding people through the dialectic to the executive function where there's objectivity. So if the people who are perturbed by the mandate stop and try to read that letter that I just said and try to put them into context, at least softens and opens the doorway for not being right, but for potentially trying to communicate. Some people want to label people and say, well, they're not willing to communicate and they're just authoritative. And at the same time, the more retaliative we get, the more that escalates. That's the funny part of it. So what it does, it just escalates until it eventually gets drama. Just like in a fight at, at a, in a relationship, it escalates to a point where drama occurs and it goes from communication to gestural communication to eventually fistfights, if you mean. So by doing that and taking the time and reflecting on that, it just opens the doorway of communication. Uh, if I was running the government, Demartini for prime minister, if I was running the government, I mm, would- I'm voting. I'm not American, but I'm voting. This is definitely a, a, um, a comedy routine for just now, for this next few seconds here. But if I was running for it, I would probably, because of my value system, try to bring education and have open debates, not, not debates, but dialogues and dialectic dialogues, and make sure that I listen to their side and make sure I put objective data together. Because I think a lot of this would calm down if objective data was presented on both sides publicly. So the the models that's in medicine and things of that nature that's not seeing that people are having side effects and people are having problems. And right now in London, I believe I read an article two days ago, 87% of the people in the hospitals right now have already been vaccinated twice. So they're, and they're still in there for now the Omicron or the Delta version. So the reality is that there are some people that want to not have to go through that, go through those vaccinations and they're still having the COVID. Now, the COVID vaccines are not designed for not having the COVID. It's designed to solve or reduce supposedly the morbidity. It's not there to prevent. It never was a use tool for prevention. It was more of a tool for morbidity issues. But what happens is I think that they're leaving out information and they're not willing to embrace some of the information. Not that all misinformation on both sides is real, but that which is factual if it was out there presented on both sides and both sides were to hear it, I think it'd be a lot easier to negotiate more reasonable options and decisions. But what we've got is we've got the law of heuristic escalation initiating more amygdala responses than reasonable responses. And I think that that's been escalated. And I think education, just like in income inequality, gender inequality, religious inequalities perceived, Education, true education and information that is factual and objective does help reduce those polarities. So I would say that that would be the the starting point to make sure that we're not just biasing information. I, I saw an article, no, a legal letter 
in New Zealand against the government by a group of people. And I read it, and I have some background in epidemiology and virology in these areas, and it was just massively misinformation. So that aggravates the government because they're putting in something that's just ridiculous. There was enough facts in there, maybe 20%, that would have been wise to stick to and then take out the fluff. But what it does, it just escalates even more reason to now curtail and not have to deal with that frustration. So, and then what happens, the government is leaving out information and the people in the media is leaving out information and the media wants to sensate it because that's what sells media and polarize it further. So somehow there has to be an educational, objective educational system that's willing to speak forthright with the real facts on both sides. Because some of the facts of the anti-vaccine movement is factual. It's true. And some of that on the pro-vaccine kind of thing and mandates is also true. I had um, a gentleman who is the leading epidemiologist for the World Health Organization, the CDC, and also the British Health Organization. And we paid $100,000 between everybody on the ship. We all pitched in and put about $1,000 in to get this guy over here who is about as knowledgeable as we can find. And we have some very intelligent people. We have a gene therapist on here that's helped put together the vaccines. We've got people here that are heads of organizations. We've got some pretty sharp people. And we had a list of questions to throw at this guy. And he first gave us a history of every epidemic and pandemic through history that's been recorded and gave us the history of each one of those things, what was done, how it started, how it spread, the things they tried to do to stop it, everything. And first, he went through the entire history of pandemics and epidemics in the world as a, as a presentation for two hours. And that was extremely informative. And then he sat down and did probably the most comprehensive summary of pros and cons on both sides of the equation and anticipated most of our questions and nipped them objectively without an emotional reaction, not in favor of either side, but showing the pros and cons of both sides and calmed down the entire group from any reaction. And he believed that some things the government was doing needed to be in check and some things the other people needed to be needed to be awakened. And he laid them all out. And then we had a two and a half hour Q&A, which would have been a five hour Q&A if it hadn't have been for him nipping most of them. And um, he did a fantastic job. And I'd be great if the whole friggin' world would be able to see that experience. I think that would calm down a lot of reactions, start communication and you know, if you have a person, he was saying that if a person has a natural immunity built up from experiencing COVID before their vaccine, they had COVID, and they can show that the antibodies and everything are in place, that they deserve to have an option and a freedom to make those decisions and do the risk-reward ratios, get some facts on the risk-reward ratios and give people the options and risk-reward ratios. And he was very in favor of that. But he said, but that is also complex. And then you have also the legality. So this is why the government has become so staunch, I think, is the guy went to a restaurant, ended up sitting on the outside where it's supposedly a little bit safer, took his mask off, if you will, relaxed, ended up with COVID. Now, whether he got COVID at the restaurant is a debatable topic. And whether he got, and why he got sick and the degree of it was his own health factors. What part is that? But he ended up dying. And the family decided to sue the, the restaurant. They got to go somewhere. They do. They were probably angry at something. They had to. They figured this. Now the guy in the restaurant's trying to run a business. He's trying to keep alive, and he doesn't have a, a choice but to try to 
you know, protect himself and protect the restaurant, keep the restaurant going to pay for his family and everything else. So it's a very challenging situation. He's now going, I ain't open the restaurant unless they come in here with a mask, unless they do this, unless they sign this deal. And he's, he's going, I can't, I can't take that risk again. That cost me 20 grand in legal fees. He didn't lose the case, but so he's sitting there with that and he's got, and there's people in business and there's all these variations of beliefs and needs and challenges. That's why it's not easy to be in the government right now. I wouldn't want to be in there having to make all these decisions because sometimes the, the decision is economic. It's not even health-related. No, no. Look, if it was health-related, they would simply have educated people on what they can do to strengthen their immune systems and be preventative. We've already seen the science. There are preventative measures that are extremely effective and they've been squashed for whatever reason. I know that in Australia, hydrochloroquine was made illegal. A doctor could go to jail if you were caught prescribing hydrochloroquine. And this happened before any of the data came out in hydrochloroquine. So you look at these sorts of things, you think there is corruption at some level. There's also when I felt moments of anger and frustration, because for me, it's come mainly from being separated from my son, not having the freedom to, to visit my son who's in a different state. We have a 50-50 relationship. I would see him every two weeks and that was taken from me. So that's where my charge came from. But I always tried to come back to your principles of well, I have to try at least to see the other side. I'm missing something because I'm feeling emotionally charged. I put myself in the position of the people in power and I think, well, it's an extremely challenging place to be. Regardless of that, I still believe that looking for the support in this situation, when you have a health crisis, then we have an opportunity, the support to educate on how to change that within our own lives. And I think that was an opportunity greatly missed. And that's been taken up by the individuals themselves. They're now doing it for themselves, which I guess is part of the support and challenge. But when I think about your work specifically, it makes me wonder, throughout this whole time where people are losing jobs, people are, not everyone, not everyone's losing jobs, not everyone's being forced. People are doing it very willingly as well, but some people aren't. And it makes me think, is this not an opportunity for us, for, for everyone to find more authenticity? Because we're getting challenged in all areas of our life, what you would call the seven areas of life. Well, I think I would say that any area of your life you don't empower, people will overpower you. So if you don't empower yourself intellectually, you'll be told what to think. If you don't empower yourself in business, you'll be told what to do. If you don't empower yourself in finance, you'll be told what you're worth. If you don't empower yourself in a relationship, you'll be do honey do things around the house that's uninspiring. If you don't empower yourself in social, you'll be told misinformation and propaganda. If you don't empower yourself physically, you'll be told what drugs to take and organs to remove. If you don't empower yourself spiritually, you'll taught some sort of a geocentric dogma, possibly. So there is a wisdom in deciding to pursue a masterful life and empower your life. But with that said, there are going to be situations where you have to factor in individuality versus the collective. And that's a very challenging paradox for people because you can't just ignore the world independently because the world depends on you too and you depend on the world now the question is before you take a stance i really believe it's wise to balance the equation see there's a thing called decisions that's built out of subjective bias and there's spontaneous acts of inspiration and love when you have a completely balanced view so i'm a firm believer of doing what i'm doing during this whole thing for the last two years when COVID first hit, I sent out a letter to my student base, and I received 17,000 benefits of COVID sent to me, 17,000. 
you know, the benefits of how it's brought him closer to the family. It's made him go online. It's made him get tech savvy. It's made him redo the business to make sure they meet the needs of customers. They're now having more time for their children. They're closer to their family. They're now working at home. They're not having to drive. There's less pollution. It just went on and on and on. And most people weren't asking the question, what's the upside since send them in? But 17,000 of them came. And it took a lot of stress because when I went back out with a summary of that to people, it reduced some of the distress and anger. Because a lot of people were comparing their current reality to the way it used to be or how they fantasize it being instead of actually, what's the benefit of this experience? How's it helping me fulfill my mission in life? So I'm a firm believer in asking the, the question, what's the benefit to the government of having resistance? And what's the benefit of us being mandated? And find out how that, what does that do for us? How does that, does that make us dig deeper and find out what's really important to us? Prioritize our life, find out where our own boundaries are. Uh, does it make us make sure we do our homework and really do our homework well? I start looking at both. That way, I'm less charged about both sides. And I'm more likely to make not a subjective biased decision, but that takes a stance and creates an obvious stance, but more likely to come to the center and make an act that is more adaptable. I've seen some people, I have a friend of mine that died three days ago, 64 years old, vaccinated twice, fell over walking from the couch to the bathroom, fell over and died. And it was a cardiovascular response. He had COVID, even though he had two vaccines, he had COVID, but he ended up having a cardiovascular shutdown. And his wife is in shock, like on he was working out this morning in the gym. What the heck happened? He was still having a cough from his COVID. He'd gotten through the COVID. They thought they were over it and on the tail end of it, suddenly died. But he had two COVID shots. So somebody sees that and they go, well, he did two COVIDs and he died. <laughs> two COVID uh, vaccines. So why, you know, that would lead people to go, well, why would we even bother with that? It didn't do any good. So that's another factor that leads that way. So all that data is not being fully disposed on both sides. I think it deserves to be put out there on both sides, but not with an idea that this is right and this is wrong, but just the data. I've been accumulating the data on the pros and cons of both sides, the vaccines, the, the way it's handled, the media, the anti-vaccine. I mean, all, both sides. And I keep a balanced thing on there so that way I, I'm not attached to what people decide to do. If a person wants to go the vaccine route, that's okay. They want to go the non But there's going to be consequences both sides. There may be side effects on taking the vaccine. You may have to take them and ask what's the pros and cons of that? What's the probabilities of that? So I went and researched all that, the best of my ability. What are all the different side effects? Well, there's about 119, I think, I've got accumulated right now, of consistent patterns of what do people have from that. And you look at the pros and cons of those. And I, I just, I like to educate myself and try to keep current with what that is. And then just disseminate the information. Let their heart make that decision, but not their biased mind. Because a biased mind usually ends up having the opposite side effect. You know, whatever we, we are against, we run into eventually. So I try to educate myself and then try to disseminate that education as best I can to other people so they can make a more informed decision. Because I always say a decision that's emotionally reactive is blind to something. There's a bias. But a, a decision or an action that is spontaneous uh, is a sign you've got both sides now finally in place. 
So I think it's wise to put those two together. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, it reminded me of a message I received this morning on Instagram, which I shared on my Instagram. It's just a direct message and I got permission to share it. So this person won't mind me reading this to you, but she said, I didn't lose anything. I chose to give it all up. I closed my business because I refused to ask questions that are none of my business. My second job decided not to have me back, but from that, I got a casual admin job one day a week. I choose not to go to places that discriminate against me and don't value the right to choose. To be honest, I'm done being mad. I'm in Victoria. I've been mad for long enough. (laughs) This is actually a blessing. It shows you who's who. It shows you which businesses to support and which ones not to. It shows you who of your friends actually respects you and aligns with your values or at least isn't judgmental. And most importantly, it shows you who you are to yourself. What do you think of that statement? I think that's a beautiful statement. I think that she allowed herself not to be a victim of the history. She allowed herself to be a master of her destiny, chose those pathways at that moment based on those variables with an attitude that's fantastic. I think that's a smart, resilient, adaptable way of managing her situation. She was probably mad, but she's now realizing that she found a solution and navigated through it and chose her path. And brilliant. I mean, she's got her freedom back to her to the some degree, not fully, I'm sure, but enough to do what she wants to do in life. There's always constraints out there. I always say that no human being is going to be free without constraint. If you don't constrain yourself, you'll be constrained by others. Constraining yourself means making sure you don't allow your amygdala and your animal biases to run wild, but to make sure that you govern yourself with full objective information. Because if you can't govern yourself with the facts, you'll end up being governed by somebody else with the fictions. So I think that she's handled it well and she's stated it beautifully. So I think that's an inspiration to help people realize that there's options, even in the mandated situation, there's still options. It's interesting you mentioned fact and fiction because that reminds me of the huge uptake in conspiracy theories because people have allowed the fiction to dominate their whole world in some cases. People making huge decisions based on some radical, radical things that I've personally heard, which I just can't ever see happening, ever, in any situation. But, you know, one thing I sort of struggle with a bit personally is, for example, this afternoon, there's a big rally. It's called Freedom Fest, 40 minutes down the road. And I'm tempted to be there. But what place do rallies have? And let's say it's peaceful, it's not violent. You know, it's people just wanting to be given the choice what goes in their bodies, essentially, the freedom they're speaking about. What place do these rallies hold? Is it something, do they serve a beneficial purpose or is it just adding to the confusion? Well, it depends on their basis. I think the freedom in a democracy to be able to gather in a respectful manner and to share ideas and share your views and things like that deserves to be heard. I think that's essential in a country. That's what America was based on. I think Australia is built on that also. Some countries don't have that option. I've seen where that, if you try to pull that, you're immediately hung. So I've seen that in countries. I've been in countries where they have hanging places outside and literally drove by them and saw them. I go, wow, that's pretty interesting. But that also has to, I just attended a movie that came out on freedom of speech the other day. I was curious to watch it. And it was moderately well done. I wouldn't say it's just wow, but it was moderately well done. But now the question is, is what is the freedom of speech? That's a real interesting paradox. Is that freedom to say anything you want to anybody, anywhere, anytime? Does it have any governance on it whatsoever? There's a, an interesting place of how far does that go? You know, then, and people will take it like a, a child will take you to the limits until you 
come up with where your boundary is. So if they are spouting out misinformation and causing an emotional reaction and causing a movement that is really ridiculously off from reality, then the question is, does the government have the right to stop misinformation? Does it have the ability to let them learn their lessons the hard way? These are questions that are easily debated and are debated. But I think a rally like that of sharing the frustrations is inevitable in a country where an epidemic like this is happening. I don't think the government knew and knows how to manage this. I think it's, it was not prepared for it. I think there's a basic principle of human behavior that whenever our values are challenged, we tax the rules. Whenever our values are supported, we lax the rules. So the government's leaders are also being challenged left and right, and they tax the rules. So the more we challenge and stand up to it, the more they tax it, and that's the law of heuristic escalation. And the more you do that, the more they fight it, and it escalates into a conflict. So if they can do something, the question is, is, are they doing it just to be heard? Are they doing it to gather petitions and do a democratic approach to try to make a change and let people know that there's a majority or a minority that have a belief? If you really gather the numbers of people and can prove that it's a majority and you now have votes that can go in a certain direction by a democratic process, politicians are going to listen. And all of a sudden, the, the financial world starts listening, too, because they realize that they could be boycotted. And it's done in a respectful, democratic way. That is very powerful. You can change the government and have people listen if you get enough people. I've seen people gather enough people together to get influence and gain forces and raise funds and make the change that they want. But if you've got a small group and you're just doing a rally and you're just screaming at the top of your head and yelling and fighting and anger and this and that, you're probably going to be more frustrated when you're done because you're not actually going to get much accomplished. So it's how they do it to the magnet they do it. And a small group of people that are biased are not going to get much accomplished. But if it's a real movement and it's really listening to the majority of people and they're now gathering and organizing those and they're doing it in a respectful manner, they can change the course of law. They can do all kinds of things with that. That's That has been done. So I'm hoping that the movement like that is done in that format because uh, that has clout, that has influence. But a few angry people won't. But you put, you know, you have 25 million or so there in Australia. You gather a petitions of, you know, a couple million people and you get uh, hundreds of thousands of people doing it. You're going to get people's attention and they're going to end up having to listen. But if you just do it as a loud mouth upset, it's not going to get much done. You're just going to get more frustrated and there's probably going to be violence manifested. It's interesting, John, there was rallies maybe five weeks or so ago around Australia. Very peaceful. They certainly seemed very, I don't know, like there was it was coming from a very good place. In every major city, there would have been, I'm going to guess, one and a half to two million people on the streets. And how many major news outlets do you think reported that? Well, the news outlets are also businesses and they are also looking at sensationalism and they're also backed by organizations. I had a I know that some of those organizations in the media, you know, are they're connected in many different they got their hands coming in and money coming in from different sources. People are going to go to where their people are supporting them the most. One thing that people have to understand about human behavior is that every decision an individual makes is going to be based on what they believe will give them the greatest advantage over disadvantage at that moment. And so if the government feels it's more advantage to the people in their circles than disadvantage to do this, they're going to go that way. And if the media feels it's going to be more advantage to do this, when you go and you have a great story, 
but they don't think there's going to be enough people watching it or wanting to do it. They can't, they can't pay their bills. They got to make sure that they're getting something sensational to be able to get people to the numbers of there. It's, it, it, you may have a great idea and a great story, but if they don't get enough people on there and it's not sensational enough and they don't get enough ads, they're out of business. So there's lots of variables that I think that some people that are idealistic don't consider why these things are happening. And if we really understand the values of the decision makers, the needs of the companies, and look at our own life where we've done these same type of biases and decisions. I had a gentleman, when I spoke at at the Milk Abbey in Austria one time, there were 12 of us speaking, and there were six social architects, social entrepreneurs, trying to solve six major issues in the world, hunger, water, healthcare, many different major issues on the planet. And they were bitching, excuse the expression, about the powerful, money, greedy, corporate, financial institutions. So I had dinner with them on one of the nights, Thursday night, and they were bitching about those people and bad-mouthing about them. And the following day, they got up and they presented their cause in front of all those people in order to raise funds because they were non-sustainable at a sustainable conference. That was the title. They were non-sustainable and dependent on the people that they resented. On Friday night, I had dinner with the financial side And they were bitching about the do-gooders and the altruistic, you know, save the world people and how they have to look good in their corporations to look like they're donating to that. And so they were bitching at night. And then then the next day they're in front of them and thanking them and giving them a big check and making sure it was in the media and making sure that. So what happens is both sides were non-sustainable because they had been disempowered and, you know, the, the people that were altruistic were disempowered in the the corporate and the financial, and the people that are empowered over here were not empowered over there. They were not the social. So I see this polarity. It's, it's like a, a difference of value systems clashing. And again, the, it's the same. It, we depend on these two sides, but we fight to be right instead of actually to love and to learn how to communicate effectively and understand that the very opponent is, has something you need. The fastest way to disarm the opponent is to own the traits of the opponent by social endomorphosis. And by owning the traits of it, as Nietzsche said, if you have a, a few geniuses and a bunch of illiterates, you have a high polarity. If you raise the standards of the education here, you calm down some of the geniuses, the highly excessive things. The same thing with wealth. Wealth is redistributed if you empower the many towards starting to save and invest a bit. But the very thing that they condemn are those people that do that, so they won't do that, which then polarizes it further and keeps giving power to the many, I mean, to the few. So... Owning a trait to the people that you oppose and seeing where it's reflective in you and having reflective awareness is one of the most powerful ways of starting the negotiation and actually making progress. And that's been shown and proven for centuries. Plato wrote about it. Aristotle wrote about it. Hobbes wrote about it. Locke wrote about it. They all knew about this. Castiglione, Machiavelli, Nietzsche, all of them do. Yeah, it's, it's always been something which we've tried to look at when we have things playing out in our lives where we are emotionally charged and looking where that's showing up in our life, where we've disowned that within ourselves. That's a beautiful reminder because I think I haven't done that for a little while in relation to what's happening in the world. I know that I want to release you into your dinner and your walk along the beach in Mexico tonight. So if we could finish with one more question, John, another great reminder I've had this evening has been in relation to disempowerment. And rather than touching on all those seven areas, I think if we could just touch on the body, on health just quickly, because I think it's a very important and timely thing right now, people feeling disempowered to some extent or being overpowered. What would you say to someone who is feeling that way, whether they 
are being forced to do something they don't want to do, whether they are just going along without any education and any empowerment, um, or sort of in between, in the middle, in relation to, I'm hesitant to keep saying the word vaccines because, you know, this show could get, <laughs> could get censored, you know, that's the world we live in. But I'm asking you straight up about that because it's a very timely thing right now. Someone who is feeling disempowered, what would you say to them as, as a farewell remark? Well, I've said this back March 2020. Every single thing that we know that enhances our body's health and well-being quotient, our wellness quotient, our well-being quotient, let's be wise and do it. So we decrease the probability of having morbidity or mortality from you know such a situation. Let's also make sure that we, whatever we judge in somebody else, pluck the moat out of your own eye and go look inside and make sure you're not just reacting. Because we only resent things on the outside that represents a part of us that we feel ashamed of on the inside. That's been proven for centuries. And if we go and identify what we're, what specific trait, action, or inaction do we dislike or despise most in someone around us or somebody in government or somebody at our, our office, business, and ask what specific trait is it that we're judging and narrow it down so it's specific, so it's not vague, broad generalities of generalizations. And then go inside your life and look reflectively with introspection and ask, go to a moment, me, where and when did I display and demonstrate this behavior? And write down where it was, when it was, who it was it to, and who perceived me that way. And then do it again and again and again. And don't make anything up, but look honestly, because it's not fair to judge another person for doing something that we're doing in our own life, but we're too proud to admit it. And go in there and own that, because when we do, it calms down the anger allows us more likely to understand their reality. It decreases the probability of a sympathetic response, which tends to hinder the immune response and causes an imbalance between the inflammatory and anti-inflammatory cytokine response, which is known to cause problems, secondary problems if you did get COVID. So this is to our advantage to appreciate more so than retaliate. And um, by going and doing that and calming ourselves down, eating wisely and walking and exercising and all the things we know and supplements and all the things we know and having something that's deeply meaningful. If we're doing something that's meaningful, that's serving other people, that's helping us have sustainable, fair exchange with people, that helps us feel purposeful, we're going to have more likelihood of longevity and resilience and adaptability. Our executive center, our gratitude center in the forebrain, whenever we're doing the highest priority things we can do that's a sustainable, fair exchange with people around us, doing something we love that's meaningful, but also serves people, that pays for it, that will pay. Our resilience and adaptability is more neutral. See, when we're highly polarized something, we fear it's loss. If we're highly infatuated, we fear it's loss. If we're highly resentful, we fear it's gain. Those fears are not to our advantage when we're having an epidemic. But if we're neutral and we're balanced, the fear of loss disappears, the fear of gain disappears, and we can make actions that are spontaneous from within instead of emotional reactions dictated by outside circumstances. When the voice and the vision on the inside, as I said on The Secret many years ago, is louder than all that on the outside. And also, prioritize what you feed your mind. Don't just let sensationalism or misinformation grab the attention. Because anything you infatuate with or resent will occupy space and time in your mind and run you and keep you stuck in the amygdala. And that's not where you're going to be most resilient, adaptable, and functioning for your health. So you're also not going to probably be the most resourceful for other people. 
So that's maybe something to be considering at the time, to maximize your own health and well-being and know that the greatest teacher to others is exemplification. So if you exemplify that, you're going to have a chain reaction on other people when they see you poised and present and productive, prioritized, and in a sense, uh, respectful to people. So I'd say start with acting instead of blaming because causality, whenever we blame something on the outside, we end up having to find a solution on the outside. But whenever we reflect and realize that what's out there is inside us, and we have now introspection and reflection, we're in command. The world out there, it's not what the world's out there doing, it's our perception, decisions, and actions about the world. We have the capacity to take anything that's ever been happening to us and find the upsides to it, or the downsides if we're infatuated with it, and balance it out, and then make a wise decision and an action instead of a reaction. That's the greatest thing we can be doing, I think, in these situations. Mm, Beautifully said. I can't imagine a better way to finish and As I said, I know that I'm keeping you one minute from your dinner. So thank you for coming on here, being patient while we sorted out some baby stuff. And as always, John, it's it's an absolute pleasure to just chat with you and get your perspective. You've given me a lot to think about because I did wake up this morning feeling a bit emotionally charged. So the the timing was perfect for me to take over on this interview. (laughs) But thank you again. I really can't wait. You can thank the baby. Give your baby a big hug and kiss for having planned that out just so we could have our time together. Yeah, it was perfectly done. (laughs) Thank you so much, John. Thank you. So there you have it. That was Dr. John Demartini doing what he does so well and helping us see both sides. And I think for me personally, having been you know caught up in this pandemic in a personal way with really being separated from my son, which has been very challenging, it's easy to make it personal, right? It's easy to see one side more than the other. But one thing we can't ignore is that there's always two sides. We can think about pharmacy companies you know, big farmer who are out there making profit and we can spin all sorts of narratives like every single person who works at Pfizer is evil. You know, we can have these narratives in our head. It's simply not true because that's not seeing both sides. We can also get angry at the government. We can get angry at different people who are telling us what we can and can't do. But again, it's not seeing both sides. And while it's important to always speak our truth, and I do believe it's, you know, very important to to speak up on these issues, especially when freedoms have been taken from us, which is most certainly the case right now in my state of Queensland in Australia, where we live. It's also really important to understand that a lot of the time, while we may not agree with what's going on, most people are always just kind of doing their best. They're doing their best from the level of consciousness that they have available to them at that time. So what good is it that we get angry? Probably none. Should we speak our truth? 100%. Should we see both sides? Yes. Have I always done that? No. (laughs) Will I try to do more of that? Yes. And I think that's the greatest lesson from this is to remember that it's pretty hard to change what's happening. But the one thing we do have control over is who we are being in relation to what's happening. And to remember that we have tools at our disposal. We have tools like meditation that allow us to dip beyond thought beyond our mind into that state of beingness, which is beyond all the stuff that's happening in the world, to experience that truth, the essence of who we are, to come back to the center. And when we do that, we can re-enter the physical world in a much more balanced way. And my goal after this episode is, while I'll still speak my truth, and if you follow me on Instagram, I still might do some comedic things and have my rants on there at I am Nick Broadhurst on Instagram, but 
also doing it from a different place, doing it from a place of love. Is that possible? I think it is. So for all of today's show notes, make sure you head to melissaambrosina.com forward slash 434. And don't forget to follow Melissa on Instagram at melissaambrosini. I'm also on there at I'm Nick Broadhurst. Two very different accounts. I'm a bit of a joker. Melissa loves to share really great content. (laughs) I'm not saying mine's not good, but it's just different. And we'd love to have you over there. We also do giveaways and all sorts of fun things on our Instagram accounts. And we hope you've enjoyed this totally ad-free episode, sponsor-free, uninterrupted episode of the Melissa Ambrosini Show, which is the plan moving forward. We're very, very excited about that. So guys, don't forget to hit that subscribe button in the podcast app, whatever app you use to listen to podcasts, Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, because that means these episodes will pop up in your feed and you won't have to search for them. And we're also remembering that Apple had a bug and dumped about half of the subscribers of this show, which was awesome. But it's really cool if you could just resubscribe. We'd be very grateful. Don't forget today to look up, see the beauty around you, see the beauty within you. Be kind to yourself, be kind to others, be gentle with yourself, be gentle with others. And above all else, have a beautiful day. I love you heaps. Mwah.